When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my special guest is Simon Lawton. Simon is the founder of Fluid Ride, a world-class mountain bike instructional school located in Seattle, Washington. He's helped riders all over the world in person and through his online videos. He's also a tireless mountain bike trail building advocate, and his nonprofit has helped disabled riders get back in the saddle. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Nice to be here. So you were a professional downhill mountain bike racer for 16 years and turned in many impressive finishes in that time. How did you personally become such a skilled rider? Uh, that's, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I was that great of a downhiller, <laughs> but, uh, but regionally I was pretty good. I used to kind of like choke when I got to World Cups and things like that. I'm uh, just kind of like a bit of a mental block. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I have had some good results over the years and I, I definitely had a lot of fun. The, the way in which I became such a skilled rider um, is really the same way in which I became a coach. It was just due to my own frustrations of my inability to ride like a pro. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of when things really switched from like Mammoth Mountain Kamikaze, like racing down fire roads, which I was quite good at right off the bat, when it switched to technical single track, that was really when um, I had to take a step back and just kind of say like, wow, this sport has really changed. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, is this something that I think I can do? And really what I did was I stood on the sideline and I watched riders and I saw what they were doing and I started to mimic those movements and then basically created a vocabulary to teach myself and mm -hmm. kind of went from watching a few world cups like that in person. Um, and then came back to the regional scene and just basically, you know, uh, was was at the top of my game regionally for the first time um, hmm. in the pro class and people just kind of said you know how, how did you do that what did you do and I said oh I just went and watched the world's best riders and figured out what they're doing and then yeah. during practice somebody said hey you know you know would you would you be willing to teach me uh, you know at the next race during practice and I you know I lived in my car I had no money and so I jokingly said yeah for a hundred bucks and he was like <laughs> yeah sure so, okay. <laughs> so that's kind of like how I've um, both kind of uh, transform my own riding, but that's actually where my coaching comes from as well. I have no coaching certifications at all. I mean, there really, there were no coaching certifications available when I started. And mm -hmm. uh, so this has just been really, it was a, to start, it was a bit of a selfish effort to become the best rider I could possibly be. And then as I started to realize that in actually creating, um, uh, like a, a base of techniques with my own terminology and being able to teach myself, I really started to realize like, wow, this is actually a, something that's transferable to others. And that's mm -hmm. when I'm really excited about the prospect of teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you didn't have access to a coach or instructors when you were racing and, and sort of yeah. getting started. I mean, did that exist at that time? I mean, it seems like today no. is pretty accessible, but it's pretty accessible. I mean, we, you know, we didn't even have proper video, you know, so <laughs> it wasn't even really possible to review your own writing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the internet was still kind of a new thing in the, in the 90s when I, when I turned pro, I turned pro in 1996. And, um, 
yeah, they, even like the internet was pretty new. There were no mountain bike coaches. I mean, I could be mm -hmm. completely off base here, but I think I was the first technical mountain bike coach that mm -hmm. I know. Of. I mean, yeah. so I think when I started this in 96, I think, you know, it's possible other people were going and I just didn't know about it. But so far as I knew at the time, I was the first one. And yeah. so it was an interesting process because people would say like, hey, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a mountain bike coach. And they're like, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm like, oh, I teach people to ride bikes. And they're like, oh, I know how to ride a bike. Right. So, no, there's actually, you know, it's, there's a lot to it. And it was kind of lost on people at first, even though within the racing world, there was interest to start. And that's really how it started was from teaching racers. And then now there's such a strong recreational base that that's completely transformed my company because I teach mostly, mostly recreational riders, quite a few racers, but mostly recreational riders. Yeah. Well, how long did it take you to sort of develop that initial course or, you know, instructional material, um, back in, in the nineties? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I think really, um, I think really what I started to notice right away was just that there were certain key things that riders were doing. And it, it was interesting because I didn't have like in hindsight, it all seems so obvious like, Oh yeah. You know, like I created the system and I made this company and mm -hmm. I, you know, I got these trails open and obviously those are great places to teach. But like in like at the time I was just bumbling my way through. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. So there was no sense of future with this. It was just kind of like, okay, how do I get faster? Okay. Put pressure on the outside foot. Okay. That's a good start. Yeah. And so my first coaching, I mean, really I didn't have a system and I still like, it's interesting. Like I still, I mean, you can go on my website and we, you know, you can read about what, what we teach during our, our coaching, you know, when we're certifying coaches, what we teach them, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, but it's not like there's a manual for it. It's not like I show up with notes when I teach. I'm really right. just showing up in the moment. And um, really most of it is about watching what people are not doing correctly and just getting proper movement going. Um, yeah. So it's less about like a whole series of movements, even though I have put terms to movements. It's I, like I always tell my other coaches who work with me, I just like that we're more like filters, like we're more like filtering out the stuff people shouldn't be doing because at the base of it, if you're able-bodied, then you can, you can make these movements. And mm -hmm. so the, it's not so much about covering up, um, things that, you know, that like, here's this whole new set of skills that you need to use. It's more about kind of removing, um, physical and mental blocks that mm -hmm. are causing to move incorrectly or, uh, misperceptions of how one should move on a bike, yeah. um, causing people to move incorrectly. Cause there's so much both misperception, maybe from things people are reading or hearing. Um, but there's also this, a very strong human reaction to fear, which is basically the fight or flight mechanism, mm -hmm. which blocks us from moving in the way we should. And really, when I talk about people who are naturally talented, people who have, you know who ride at the World Cup level, who have never had coaching, what they're able to do is to move in a way as you know much of the time as though fight or flight does not exist, and that makes mm -hmm. it just so much easier for them. I mean, you, you hear those people who are really good; they're like, I don't know, you know, like just go faster, you know? <laughs> right? But they don't really realize that they're doing something completely different. Yeah than most riders, which is basically they're letting them, their energy into the hill, they're letting their energy into the mountain, and they're not guarded and fighting against it. And that's really what the most naturally talented riders are able to do. They actually move into the hill quite naturally. And that's yeah. just, just thing that makes everything easy. Huh. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you are generally coaching people who have been mountain biking for a while, and maybe they picked up some bad habits along the way. But if you were coaching someone who is brand new to mountain biking, like they'd never done it before, what's sort of the first skill you'd have them learn? So I actually did that last night. I had a group of riders and um, one of them was a, you know, uh, somebody who had a lot of experience on the road and gravel cyclocross stuff mm -hmm. like that. Never been on a mountain bike. It was his first day on his mountain bike and it was pouring rain. Uh, <laughs> it's a good start. So the first 
Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, he did great. I mean, it was, it was really exciting for him. I had a big group last night of, um, of riders who were kind of more on the endurance side of, of, of the cycling disciplines. And, um, the first thing I teach people is a little bit surprising to a lot of people. You know, it would really depend. Like, if I had somebody who was brand new to cycling, obviously I'd teach them the control mechanisms. Here's how you brake. You know, right. the, the safety of it. Um, but generally speaking, the first thing I teach people is how to corner, and um, that everything that I teach within the cornering, within the context of cornering, kind of goes into everything else. I really talk about kind of laying a solid foundation. Like it was interesting. I had this group last night, and they said, "Well, you know, they, this private group had hired me." They said, "Well, we want to learn." you know, X, Y, and Z. We want to learn how to go through technical routes. We want to do this. We want to do that. We don't have cornering on the list. And I just mm -hmm. said, well, you know, you guys are pinching the top tube with your knees. Your knees are locked out. Like you're not ready to go through routes. You have to actually lay a foundation first. Um, and so that, that's a super important element. That's the most important element is having a foundation. I kind of liken it to, um, to a house basically, you know, mm -hmm. like if you have a super solid foundation on a building, you can build a really tall building that will hold up in extreme conditions. But if you have like no foundation, um, you're not building something very strong. And so really my focus with my teaching is on building the most rock solid foundation I can. And that starts with cornering. And, uh, surprisingly enough, I don't start with body position. We do some, some basic drills that put people into position to where they feel it and it's less about a like remember to stand like this i mean mm -hmm. it's more um it's more basic than that i really just teach what i call uh, i call it throne position but it's just a standing posture it's really just a human standing posture where we mm -hmm. stand with a very slight bend in the knees so that our knees are right over our toes it's the same way humans walk um like if you took a video of somebody walking up and down like gravel piles or mm -hmm. hills or something what you'd see is that the humans nose would be over their knees and their knees would be over their toes. It's really how a human balances. And so this is something that is at the root of our teaching. It's not that your nose is always over your knees on your bike, but there are certain things that you can see when fear comes in um, mm -hmm. or when somebody's new is they tend to push their knees back, lock their knees and get their knees back over the back of the bike. And that really keeps them from riding over the bottom bracket, which to me is the most like, kind of central and important part of the bicycle. Yeah. So I start cornering and get them understanding the role of the bottom bracket, the role of the pedal spindles, all the rotating portions of the bicycle, um, and get them starting to feel like this. Like Usually within 30 minutes, they're like, I've never ridden a bicycle like this. This is incredible. Mm. And so that's the first thing I try to land is like um, – that's partly because it's a, it's a huge jump in their performance, and it's partly because then they really listen. You know, They're like, oh, my gosh, if this <laughs> right. can happen in 30 minutes, what's going to happen in the next two hours? Yeah, you know? yeah, they can trust you. I mean, and it's interesting – it's interesting that you focus more sort of on letting people understand that feeling. I mean, it seems like a lot of instruction can kind of just get in your head where you're, you're worried about what you're doing is my nose over my pedals or, you know, yeah. where are my knees? But, but once you feel it, it sounds like that makes it just a lot easier and it kind of clicks more intuitively. Perfectly said. I mean, so what I talk about when I'm teaching, and this is something I bring up in, in most classes I'm teaching is that. You know, I mean, there are a lot of different, uh, four, four main learning modalities, but however we learn, when you first start learning, you're kind of in your analytical mind. Yeah, mm -hmm. You're like, okay, like, what is this person saying to me? Right. Um, how am I going to interpret this? And you're kind of overthinking. And that's, that's just a part of the process of learning. And so what I encourage riders to do is each time they pass through, I'm always like saying, you know, maybe drive the knee forward more or whatever. But when they come through and it looks right, I'm like, that looks great. And so I'm trying to like let them... I let them know that when I tell them it looks good to feel what that feels like. Yeah. And then, so like, say we're going to, we're working on cornering and we're flowing down like a trail that has like eight or nine turns in it. And then they're kind of repeating it. 
I encourage them at the beginning, I just say you're going to be stuck in your mind and you're going to be thinking you might push the wrong foot down. You might, you know, everything might be backward because you're stuck in your analytical mind. Mm -hmm. I'm going to help coach you through those moments. Make sure you're doing things correctly. And when you start to feel that flow, I want you to let go of your analytical thought and move into somatic kind of somatic um, absorption or response. So you're really just bringing this sensation into your body so that it becomes the response you're going to have when you're in a moment that's similar to the moment you're in when I'm teaching you. And then I encourage those riders to bounce in and out of the analytical um, and, and into the more of the, like the somatic response, the body response. Um, more and more, like I encourage them to stay, to get more and more to the somatic end of things and mm -hmm. then to check in periodically with the analytical. What can tend to happen is riders, you know, especially like more digital learners, they can get stuck in the analytical loop and mm -hmm. they don't really get into that. Um, they don't really get the somatic response. So they're just trying to like, make a like a verbal checklist or a mental checklist when they're coming down the right. trail and that's really not what we want we really want to move into flow and really what flow is is the ability to do something so well that you no longer have conscious thought yeah yeah um, that's the and, you know we've all experienced that in one way or another in life right and it's, right. it's a wonderful feeling yeah for sure so if cornering is sort of the the base skill or the first skill people need to master what what's like a mountain bike skill that's really difficult for a lot of riders to master for whatever reason Oh, cornering. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's also, it's also the yeah. hardest. It's, it's the hardest to do well. And there's so much confusion about how a bike should be turned. Um, and I would say the hardest thing for most people to learn is what I call the front foot turn. So I would say most people really are, you know, a high degree of riders are what I call back foot dominant. Um, it doesn't mm. really matter if you're front foot or back foot dominant, but um, it doesn't matter which foot you lead with. It's the foot you put pressure on, but most people will put their strong foot in the back okay. and they'll, they'll have a good back foot turn. So let's say I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm a left foot forward rider and my, my right foot's back and it's my dominant foot. So they'll typically turn pretty well to the left because the right foot should turn us left. Mm -hmm. But then when they go into a right hand turn, they have a tendency to press that right foot by mistake instead of actually moving to the left foot, which is the front right. foot. It's, you know, it's a bit further forward. It's a little harder to access. And so I'd say even, you know, with my, or particularly with very high level riders, like, like very, very high level riders, they're so surprised when I, when I show them the weakness in their front foot turn. Um, and, um, and for like new riders, they're like, Oh my gosh, like I never even knew that that leg existed, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is really getting into being able to like the whole idea with cornering, a big part of the introduction is the bicycle, you know, the bottom bracket, the pedal spindles. But the other element of that is an introduction of, um, the fact that just as we have handedness, like right-handed or left-handed or whatever, we have footedness. So we have this ability on one side that we maybe don't possess on the other side. And so like immediately, like right off the bat in the first 10 minutes of class, we're working on becoming ambidextrous with our low body. Mm. And what I remind riders is that it's actually easier to do with our low body because at least in daily life, we walk around on both feet. We turn in both directions. We can choose to keep one of our hands in our pockets, but we can't choose, you know, to, to not use both legs. Mm -hmm. And so even though one is going to be significantly more coordinated than the other, you can actually start picking up coordination of your second, what I call your second favorite side. You can start picking up coordination of your second favorite side much more quickly than you can with, with your low body than you can with, uh, with your upper body. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think some of our listeners may be surprised to hear you say that. I mean, a lot of people, it seems are, for them, the most difficult thing that they're trying to master or want to master is like, say, a manual. I mean, it's mm. something like that. Is that one? Is that even useful? And two, um, is that something that you would even bother teaching somebody? Yeah, I mean, we certainly teach manuals. Um, I think 
I mean, there are, so there, to just to go back to the footwork thing, there's a reason people struggle with manuals. Let's say I'm back foot dominant mm -hmm. and I go to like shift my hips rearward to start to try to initiate a manual and my back foot goes down and back and sinks all the way down to six o'clock. Well, I don't, I don't have any power in the fronts of my hands because I've actually lost it, lost that power, that ability to create pressure in the fronts of my hands mm -hmm. from getting unwanted rotation of my foot base. So like, that's a really common thing for me to see. I'll see people out in the park trying to practice their manuals, but their foot, their feet are spinning around every time they try to pull up. And right. so they don't have a foundation to move from. Um, so that's one, one thing with manuals. The other thing I would say about manuals is, um, that that's a little bit uh, tricky for teaching is, uh, well, everybody wants to be able to do one for one. And yes, they're extremely <laughs> useful, um, in terrain, they're extremely useful, but they're not that useful other than to look cool, like going through like the right. parking lot or down right. a street. And people have this tendency to think like, I need to be able to manual, you know, like for a mile, which, which, which is fun and it's rad, but it doesn't really, like you're not really doing that on the trail. And one thing that, that I think is so much easier about teaching manuals in a more of a trail setting is that if you think about what a manual, like how it's meant to work, anything you would want a manual for or over on the trail is going to pull you out of the manual. Hmm. Yeah. So like anything you're going to like, you know, like you come around a turn and there's like a branch down across the trail and you're like, Ooh, I don't want to hit my front tire on that. So you manual into it, the back wheel hits it, it pulls you out or, Oh wow, there's a big puddle. You know, I want to keep my, my, uh, I want to keep my kit clean. Right. So you manual Important. through the puddle and the back end of the puddle, that edge pulls you out of the, out of the manual or you come to like a little ditch and you manual through it. The back edge of the ditch pulls you out or you manual over a double and that second bump on the double pulls you out of your manual. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what tends to happen is people practice out in the open and they spook themselves cause they flip over backward. Um, so what I get people doing is I use what's called a bump board. It's the same thing we use for teaching featuring, which is hopping off natural terrain. We just have this board that doesn't move. That's, that's, you know, maybe like a half round of log that's like five or six inches high. Mm -hmm. And we just set out cones before and we have people start manualing like, you know, like five feet before it, and then they can scoot back to the next cone and start manual like eight feet before it. And they're actually practicing using a target. So they manual toward this, what we call a bump board and the back wheel hitting it pulls them out of the manual. Mm -hmm. And so now they're actually like, they can actually look down trail, focus on the object they want a manual for, and they can manual into it, which pulls them out of the manual. Um, and that creates like a safety element that allows them to practice kind of freely and without that fear of flipping over backward, mm -hmm. which is really like people start manualing, like they might be learning pretty well and then they land on their back and then all of a sudden they start guarding and you know, their ability to, man to manual is gone. Um, so it's a, I think it's a really important trail skill, but it's a fairly advanced trail skill. Um, I teach people to do what I call, I call it passive pumping, which is just letting the bike find the ground. I teach people to use that a lot more than manuals. I mean, I use it like far more in my riding than mm -hmm. I use an actual manual, but basically when I'm going down trail, there are three, three key ways that I can deal with terrain. I can let my wheels stay on the ground. And within that, there are two things I can do. I can either pump, pump and press through, or I can just let the bike move around its own bottom bracket, which is what I call passive pumping. Okay. The second thing I could do is I could manual through something, which is quite advanced. The third thing I could do is compress into the front face of something and jump over something else down trail. So I could, you know, turn a bump into a jump or I could turn a rock or a root into a jump, which is mm -hmm. what I call featuring. And so those are really the three ways I can deal with terrain. And I would say that like 90% of the time, my wheels are, are actually on the ground, like I'm either pumping or passive pumping. And then some of the time I'm jumping something and some of the time I'm manually through things. And, um, 
people are very drawn to like the manual and to jumping over things. Right. And that's awesome. I mean, it's super, super useful. I use all three of these things interchangeably, but the, the ability to like have a really strong position on the bicycle and understand how capable the bicycle is of going at incredible speeds through terrain, um, is actually more important. Like mm-hmm. when I'm teaching like that, that idea of, of passive pumping, I mean, the bicycle is the fastest human powered vehicle in the world, which is pretty cool. But what a lot of people don't realize is it's the fastest vehicle down a trail. And mm. yeah. that is for a very particular reason. It's because of the role that the rotating elements of the bicycle play. So like my bottom bracket, for instance, I can use that and my pedal spindles. I can use the, the bottom bracket to create incredible cornering efficiency to really um, change the direction of my front side body by changing my foot height offset, the height of my feet in relation to one another. So it has this ability to corner like like nothing else. I mean, you could get down, coming down a steep hill on like a dirt bike and it's awful because you can't get your outside foot lower right. and you can't really take a foot off the motorcycle because you're going down a hill. And so like a bicycle is much faster for that reason going down like through corners, but it's also super, super fast through what I call undulating terrain. So like rocks, roots, just kind of uneven three-dimensional terrain. Mm-hmm. And that's because my foot base can remain constant. So my, my feet, when my feet are level, my feet can remain level relative to one another and level to sea level. Hmm. You know, so basically they can, they can basically be, uh, my foot base. It's like I'm standing in the kitchen, you know, I can like do all kinds of crazy stuff underneath me. It can rotate around bottom bracket. And because I have pedal spindles underneath, you know, the bearings that are in my pedals that are under my feet, those two axles basically isolate the rider as well. So the bicycle can batter around, way faster than I could ever think push pull or rock root or whatever's coming up. Mm-hmm. I can just let it like batter through terrain. And so long as my position is really sound over the bottom bracket, the bicycle is going to be free to move underneath me. And then those pedal spindles again are allowing my feet to stay level relative to one another and level level ish relative to sea level, which is when you think about it, it's really pretty astounding. I mean, you can yeah. go down a super steep, like quick roll down and your foot base isn't really changing. You right. know, it's kind of like this escalator that comes down, <laughs> you know, that comes down this incredibly steep, rough terrain, and the bicycle is able to find the ground underneath us and move around. And so it's really a unique system. And I think that that's probably, I would say that that's at the core of my, of my teachings is understanding the role that the bottom bracket plays and the role that the pedal spindles play. And most of the corrections we're making are based on control around those mechanisms. So that's, I mean, that's primarily what we're working on. I mean, I have, you know, top riders from Whistler or whatever, and they come down, you know, regularly and they're, they, they just want to have the most simple instruction. They want me to watch what they're doing at their foot base and they mm-hmm. want me to make really small tweaks to that. And they always say that it just goes all the way through their riding and that they're just, you know, like everything changes with their riding as soon as they make these really small changes at the foot base because everything is built on that foundation. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, and it, for me, it brings all new meaning to the name of your company, Fluid Ride. I mean, yeah. imagining like a bubble level, you know, like it's always going to, it's always going to point up no matter where you're, you're pushing it around. And, and that's, that's what water does. And that's what mm-hmm. you do when you're on the bike. So that's really cool. Yeah. And all your years of training different riders all over the world, um, have you noticed any differences between riders of different ages? And I'm thinking particularly about middle-aged riders. Like, are they easier to, to instruct or more difficult because they've got maybe some, some bad habits built up? You know, I think um, that's a really good question. I, I, uh, I would say that the riders who are the most difficult to teach are the ones who show up and go like, 
I'm an expert. I've got 25 years experience. You're like, oh, okay, you got 25 years of bad habits. You know, right. um, I would say that those are the hardest writers to teach. Um, but once they buy off on, on the fact that, you know, like I've had people say, kind of show up saying like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an expert rider. And then they'll tell me two hours later, wow, that's the first time I've ever actually ridden a bicycle. Like I thought <laughs> I was riding my bicycle, but I'd, I've never ridden a bicycle until today. Yeah. Um, and so those can be the, the toughest to teach. Um, but everybody is super teachable. I mean, like I don't have trouble really teaching anybody. Um, people have the ability to learn. Uh, you know, they don't, you know, kids learn the most quickly for sure. Uh, but then they might not be as interested in, in continuing to like keep working on fundamentals that mm -hmm. are really, really important. And so I'd say that, you know, the base of my business is probably people like in their 40s, 40s, early 50s. It's probably the majority of the people I see, I don't know if that's not necessarily true. Maybe some of that has to do with, with my prices and things like that. <laughs> right. Um, so, but, but I would say that those people are typically like the, the people in, of those, in those ages are, they're really excited to learn. You know, they're really yeah. like, once they realize like, wow, like I thought I was, I thought I wasn't any good at this. And like, I can be really, really good. And once that light bulb goes off where they're like, wow. And you know, and what I tell them is like, yeah, I mean, you're learning super well you're mimicking what, what the best writers in the world are doing. And you're mm -hmm. doing this within 30 minutes of starting. Like yeah. imagine what you can do if you just stick with this and people are writing at levels like, I mean, you know, I'm one of the fastest writers my age around mm -hmm. and people are, you know, approach are starting to approach my speed having started riding bikes in their mid forties and they're starting to approach my speed within yeah. a few years, you know? And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> I mean, they're actually like, riding in Europe with me and I like, I stop and they're like five seconds behind me. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Your secret's out. The secret's out. Yeah. It's really <laughs> cool to see people and they're just glowing, you know, cause they're just super psyched at how fast they're going and, and how, how effortless it is. And I think that that's the big thing is like people come to class. I get this all the time. People ask me like, I had it last night even where somebody said like, look, like I, you know, I believe in your teaching. It's great, but I don't want to go any faster. Can you, can you help me? You know, mm -hmm. it's, can you still help me ride? Like, not really. No, because you're going <laughs> to, you're going to ride faster as a result of riding better, but you're not going to feel like you're taking nearly as many chances and the bike's actually going to be smoother and the force of, of the bicycle when you're in the correct position actually is going to reward you with a sensation of, of flow and of smoothness. And so, um, I think there's this general idea where we equate speed with risk mm -hmm. and really what risk is, should be more associated with improper movement. Yeah. Um, Really, as, as you go faster and faster, I mean, I always say this about the top pro riders, but the faster they go up to a certain point where they break loose or whatever, up to a certain point, the faster they go, the more control they have. Hmm. If we're in the right position, we're creating proper ground force. You know, if you're out of position, the first thing that's out of position is going to make speed feel as though it's the danger. And it is the danger if you're out of position because hmm. you're going to have more ground force on something that's not set up to handle that ground force. And that's going to be perceived as risk as like, okay, I need to slow down. I'm taking too many chances. This is crazy. And as soon as you take that little glitch out of the rider's riding, I call it raising the speed ceiling. Suddenly they're like the top blows off what they thought they could do before, yeah. because we're basically riding to our lowest common denominator, like whatever the weakest part of your stance is, whatever your second favorite side is for cornering, you know, whatever, glitch or misgiving you have in your riding, you're riding down to that level. You're, you don't have a choice. Like you might have a great left-hand turn and that's like, sweet. And then you hit a right-hand turn. You're like, okay, slow. And then mm -hmm. sweet, slow, you know? <laughs> and so when you get that to where it's like, sweet, 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 like on both sides, you're like, oh my gosh, the trail yeah. just starts to like rapidly fly past you. And it's doing so with actually a sense of more 
um, confidence and control than you had when you were going actually much more slowly, but with a weakness in your riding. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like for middle-aged riders, you know, openness is, is really the key to learning new skills and, and they're able to pick up those skills just as quickly as anyone else. Do you have tips though for riders who are over 40 in terms of like fitness or injury prevention and recovery? Is, does that look a little bit different? Um, that's, uh, I would say, you know, I, I would say the main thing for riders in their forties, um, is education, you know, like, I mean, don't skimp on, you know, if you find a good coach around your area, you know, or if you come and do coaching with me or whoever you choose to do coaching with you, if you find something that's really working for you, Mm -hmm. that's your best injury, injury prevention. I, you know, I have so many riders who's like wives or bosses or whatever are buying them glasses with me because they're like, man, I just don't want you getting hurt anymore. And they, they, <laughs> yeah. they think of me, they, a lot of people call me their security blanket because they can come to me and they can try things they've never tried before. And because I'm there to actually change the, the, the foundational root of anything that's a weakness that could actually cause injury, I can change it like in the moment. Like I'm changing people's writing like so quickly because if I see something that could cause injury like in a jump class or something like that, I'm going to immediately change that. Like I see them hit one jump and I'm like, all right, pull over to the side. Like we're going to change this right now. And yeah. then we just change it. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can jump. Um, so I would say that that's the most important thing for for injury prevention is an understanding of what you're doing well on the bike and, and what you're doing, what you could improve on the bike uh, is being able to um, elevate your riding. Now that also goes down the line of, um, I would say less than like the ability to recover from injury as you get older, um, is, is more about the ability to recover from fear Hmm. of, of a past experience is, is even more important. And this is where education is, is, um, is so important. So basically when, if I fall or if I have a close call or whatever, and I understand exactly what I did wrong because I've been to a coach and I know like, okay, you know, Simon told me, yeah, sometimes when I, when I do this, I'll push my inside foot by mistake. And that's what happened. And mm-hmm. yeah, I went down hard, but I know exactly what I did wrong. Right. And that rider is not going to have the kind of fear, even if they were injured, they're not going to have the kind of fear that a rider who says, yeah, I went out and rode my bike and I hit the ground hard. and I have no idea what happened. Right. You know, that's, I mean, we'd kind of be idiots if we just kept going out and throwing ourselves down a hill at that age. And like, well, that didn't work. Let me just try it again. Well, that didn't work. Let me just try it again. Like, we don't want to be doing that in our 40s, you know? So, yeah. um, like, that idea of being able to do something and being able to understand uh, either why you had success or what, like, misgiving in your writing caused, um, mm-hmm. like, an issue, that's going to take away that mental fear. And that's going to really be the thing that's going to keep you enthusiastic about grabbing your bike again after you do fall down. Like, okay, like, I fell but I know what I did now, you know, I can't wait to get my cast off so I can go, so I can go <laughs> and do this properly. Right. Whereas if you didn't know what you did, you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to get my cast off, but I don't really know if I'm going to go back and try that again. Yeah. You know? Um, so for me, that's the most empowering. I would say one of the most empowering parts of teaching is seeing, you know, it's seeing people light up and understand this thing, but also having them have kind of, um, kind of an academic sense of how the bicycle should be ridden so that they're able to critique themselves as they continue to develop as riders and so that they're able to at a reasonable level at least keep fear at bay of course fear is there for a reason it's there to, to also to help keep us safe and so it's a it's a little bit of a, a fine line dance around that um but um but i would say that that's the thing that causes most people to fall mm-hmm. most falls are actually caused fear, whether it's conscious or subconscious, even at the highest level. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, 
it's an interesting thing. But yeah, I'd say that that's the main thing. So I, I don't focus too much. I mean, like I do a lot of yoga and I always tell, I always encourage people to practice yoga because it's the best thing for injury prevention in terms of like the phys physicality of your body. Mm -hmm. It's the best thing for creating um, the equality between both sides of the body that I've experienced, you know, because you're doing poses with your left side and your right side right. equally. Um, it's, you know, so you've got strength, flexibility, coordination, all these things. And then um, the ability to, uh, recover from injuries, I think is greatly enhanced with yoga, but I would say uh, that that's probably my go-to like a good diet. I, I eat super well, I, you know, practice yoga. Um, those are, those are all good things. And a little bit more on the woo-woo side of thing, uh, things, um, I, I practice a lot of pranayama as well. So a lot of breath, I do a lot of breath work and hmm. I really find that that can be a super grounding thing for people because, uh, one of the things that happens when we have a lot of fears, we, we have chemical changes in our body, things that happen, um, that we can't, we don't perceive as be ourselves as being able to control and when mm. in fact we actually can control them uh, through breath, which is something that's been like kind of a, a passion of mine now for you know, 10 or 15 years and something I, you know, that was really like I, I always believed in it and I practiced it and I, I started free diving about five or six years ago and um, that was really when I was like, wow, breath is, is super, super incredible. It's really like the foundation of, um, our, of our, our ability to calm our parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of like what creates that sense of, uh, you know, anxiety and uh, the fight or flight mechanism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, your work with Fluid Ride has taken you all over the world and your company, I believe, even offers mountain bike tours in various places around the globe. So what's your personal favorite place to ride? Oh, I love the French Alps. Um, I love riding in Chamonix. It's, it's so good. Um, it's so cool because it's really varied. Um, I've got the guys who guide for me over there have become, you know, really close friends of mine. And uh, they've just shown me a kind of like a whole other world of just kind of natural riding, which I really, really love. The mountains are pretty raw over there. Um, so the riding in the valley is quite steep, but it's it's varied. You can go down out of the base of the valley and find less steep stuff. And, you know, maybe if it's if it's Mont Blanc's right there, there's a lot of weather that's caused by the size of the mountains there. Um, if the if we're having like really inclement weather in the valley, we can pop through the tunnel into Aosta Valley in Italy. So you just go under Mont Blanc and oh. like, 10 miles later, you're like, boom, oh, it's like, it's like you're in the, not a desert, but you're like in an arid environment. It's sunny, yeah. it's warm. And, you know, so um, it's really like topographically, it's very varied in that area within a one hour drive. And so I absolutely love riding there because I feel like if I go there for a week that I just experience diversity, like riding in, in, in the valley or and then riding in Italy. And then maybe if it's really hot and dry, we go and ride some nice steep slopes over in Switzerland, which is the dirt. In, in those areas is very different than the dirt in the valley. So I feel like that, like all that variety and just the views and just the splendor of the Alps, you know, like that's, that's definitely one of my favorite places to ride. Um, cool. then, uh, you know, we also have tours in Finale Ligure and I've, I've only been there now. This is, this is my second time there. We just came back about a month ago from Finale and it's incredible there. You know, they have the EWS races there. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people perceive it as being super rocky. Um, all the famous pictures are right by the ocean where it's really rocky. But mm -hmm. if you get up high in the mountains there, we, we have an amazing guide. Louise Pollen um, is our guide there. And she um, has access to four-wheel drives and takes you, like, to where the trails are not beaten up. So we have, you know, like oh, a nine-passenger cool. Range Rover when we go up there and get up to where the trails are super loamy. And um, it's just incredible. So it just it's more kind of reminds me a little bit of the Pacific Northwest. And of course, the riding here in Seattle is amazing now. So yeah, uh, we're pretty spoiled for sure. Yeah, we're just it's it's totally world class here. So uh, for sure, 
great trails everywhere. And I love riding in South America. I spent a lot of time riding in the Andes as well. We've, we've not put on a tour there yet, but I think I've been there six or seven times. And, um, it, that's a totally different experience as well. They call it like in the area we ride a lot, they call it the anti-grip. It's not, it's not very grippy <laughs> like the Northwest. So it's, it's a bit of a wake up call, but it's, it's, uh, it's stunning and just completely different to be in the, in those huge, huge mountains. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned Seattle and you played a big role in establishing the I-5 Colonnade Mountain Bike Park, which is a really unique riding spot located underneath a highway overpass. So how did that project come together and what were some of the challenges that you guys faced? Um, yeah, so it, it's interesting. Again, in, in retrospect, I look back at it because there was no foresight. Like I had no idea what I was doing, but I used to <laughs> basically there's like 10 lanes of traffic right by right by downtown Seattle, there's like 10 lanes of highway, including the on-ramps and off-ramps and everything. And there's this big open dirt space where it was kind of gross. Like a lot of, you know, people camped and lived down there. It was mm -hmm. kind of, dirt was kind of yucky, but I still didn't, there was no place to ride. There was like literally no place to ride in the Seattle area. There was like one trail. This is in the nineties. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I used to go, I, I lived nearby that freeway. And so I used to ride over there and I'd like make some berms in this gross dirt and like <laughs> try to like do a little bit of practice. And, um, one day I was coming out of my house and this, this guy, this neighbor guy, he said, Hey, you know, have you ever seen that space that's underneath I five? And I said, yeah, cause he saw me going out with my bike and I said, I'm actually heading to ride over there now. And he said, have you ever thought making that about making that into a mountain bike park? And I'm like, yeah, every day, but how would you do that? <laughs> yeah. And he, and he said, well, I'm actually the count. I'm the East Lake, which is like kind of the little area I lived in. He said, I'm the East Lake, um, like council chair or something. I don't know. He was politically um, involved mm -hmm. and he said, I can help you make that happen if you want to. And I was kind of like, really? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically his name is Chris Lehman and he, he pushed me in the right direction for my first meeting. And that just went on for years. He just kept saying like, okay, now go to this meeting, now go to that meeting. And he just like, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I had zero idea like of what would actually come. And then the pro parks levy came up where Seattle voters, um, I don't even know what year that was. I'm going to say like, I'd be totally wrong here, like 2004 or something like that. Um, Seattle voters basically approved this big parks levy, which paid, which put a, a bunch of money aside to create uh, parks, but it also put money aside for displaced people, uh, for the homeless people. They were going you know, uh. to build a lot more shower spaces and things like that because people would be displaced as right. the parks built. Um, and so I was able to somehow in some bumbling way, secure $1.88 million from, wow. from the city of Seattle. And, like, it seemed kind of surreal. I'm like, is this really real? Like, I don't really know what to do with this. And like, it seemed like it was going to happen. And so I walked into a, an Evergreen meeting, which uh, Evergreen is our nonprofit in the area. And they're just an amazing, amazing crew of people. It was back then it was called the Backcountry Bicycle Trails Club. Hmm. And so I went into a meeting and I said like, hey, I think I've got this thing approved for this park i don't really know what it is but i think it's like two, like it's almost two million dollars do you guys want two million dollars to build a park and you know at the time they're i think their operating budget was thirty five thousand dollars they're uh they're uh you know even like the the, the head of the board uh, was unpaid there was there were no paid mm -hmm. um, spots there um and the executive director at the time was john kennedy he's somebody i've gone on to have a, a quite a long relationship with um and so i basically they said yeah of course we want to do that and <laughs> So they took that over just using volunteer labor. They started to put it together. And with that money, they, they took their lead trail builder, Mike Westra, who's still there. He's still in charge of, he doesn't actually um, shovel dirt anymore, but he's in charge of all the builders now. And they, they actually gave him a paid position. And I think they started paying the executive director a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the beginning of 
of um, Evergreen really becoming what it is today, which yeah. is, uh, you know, this highly powered, highly funded um, force. Um, I mean, they are in such incredible workers. I was on the board of directors for like three, three or four years, and I stepped down like due to gross incompetence because I was like, <laughs> people are talking about, they're so like savvy when it comes to politics and grants and, um, you know, it's just a whole nother world from the world that I live in. And uh, they're really amazing to watch them navigate. So that's kind of how Colin Aid came to be. It was just this through this stumbling process of not having a place to ride. And people said, you know, I don't think that's going to last very long, you know, because it's underneath I-5. And I said, you know, this isn't about this park. This mm-hmm. is about gaining traction with the community and having the community see that when we ask for volunteers, that like hundreds of people come out, which yeah. is what happened. And that's really what was the springboard for um, Duthie Hill Park, which I played a part in as well. And with that, I still kind of like I was kind of in disbelief that they let us build this park under I-5. <laughs> I still had no idea that we could have actual legitimate trails in the in the you know out in the wild, like on DNR land yeah. and stuff like that. It, that didn't even cross my mind. Like that that was like pie in the sky. That's never going to happen, you know? Right, then, right. Nobody needs the land under the highway, but yeah, exactly. it's a different but story when you're talking about a park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was bugging the the powers that be at King County, which is the, the big county that Seattle's a part of. Um, I was bugging the powers that be to try to like let us take a small piece of each of the existing parks in downtown Seattle and make like a pump track here and a mm-hmm. single track there and a dirt jump here, you know, like kind of like so you could ride around the city of Seattle mm-hmm. and you could hit all these mountain bike spots because it never occurred to me to actually have real mountain biking. And after bugging, uh, bugging this uh, the guy from king county for years one day he just he called me up and he said hey i think i've got something for you and he said meet me out in Issaquah." and i'm like okay so <laughs> met him out there we walked up through this all these brambles into this beautiful green space with big trees and everything and he's like kind of more or less you know will you leave me alone if i give you this land <laughs> <laughs> i said yeah for a while probably you know <laughs> um so that that was something that was immediately handed over to to Evergreen. Like I didn't I didn't even finish the process there. I think Evergreen, uh, you know, really took the reins on that and finished that out. And I think that that, that was a very similar amount of money um, that they were able to get there. I don't I don't really know the details of it. Um, but I remember when he showed me around, I thought, well, it's kind of flat. You know, I came from I came from a downhill background. <laughs> it's only like 130 feet of vertical. Do, and uh, what Evergreen has done with it defies defies gravity. Yeah, I mean, oh, cool. it is. It's amazing. Like you can like flow down these trails and the pedal up is like one minute and two minutes, you know, back to the top. And you're like, wow, this is like as much descending as it is climbing. It's <laughs> it's super well designed, super well built. It's, I call it like the lab for teaching. It's probably the best place that I've ever taught mountain bikers just in terms of the diversity and how close everything is. Um, it's definitely a, if you know, if you haven't hit it yet, you should definitely put it on your hit list. It's 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 pretty cool. It is what it is. It's just a skills park. Mm-hmm. It's 125 acres. Um, but it's basically at mile point 17 on I-90, and then mile point 25 is Tiger Mountain, mile point 27 is Raging River. Um, you know, it just goes on and on yeah. up the, you know, the pass. We have all these exits up the pass that are just amazing. So the I-90 corridor has really become uh, a world-class you know, riding destination. Yeah, very cool. So I was also interested to learn that you worked for years helping develop an artificial knee that allows above the knee leg amputees to pedal a bike. So how'd you get involved in that project? Oh, yeah, that was a big project. Um, so I was I was a Red Bull. Uh, they called me like a local legends athlete. And so I was a Red okay. Bull branded athlete for a while. And Red Bull uh, rang me up one day and they just said, like, hey, you know, we got we got this guy. We'd love you to have you work with him. He's a, you know above the knee amputee, but he's an amazing mountain biker. And so he his name is Brian Bartlett. And uh, 
so he came out to take a class and I was like, you know, first thing I was like, all right, stand up and, you know, like come through this skill drill. And he's like, well, I can't stand up. Hmm. And he had, he had like the, he had some sort of a, a, a riding leg that he was kind of starting to create. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't stand up? Even like on a prosthetic leg, you can't stand up and balance with your level feet. And he said, nobody can stand and sprint who's missing their knee. There's huh. no such thing. And being super naive at the time, I owned, I actually owned bike shops back then. I said, well, let's go to the bike shop and let's like rifle through the parts bin. There's got to be some parts we can use to get you standing. <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> kind of a long shot, right? Since I'm not a mechanic. Yeah. Um, and so we were kind of like looking at MRP rollers and he had this idea already for this tendon system. And we kind of cobbled together some things that kind of started to work. He couldn't like, I mean, he could kind of stand up, but he couldn't really like, it wasn't quite right yet. And so... I just kind of was thinking about like, okay, I've got all these students with, I've got all these connections, like who, who would have a connection to somebody, you know, to some engineers or, you know, who would Mm -hmm. be interested in helping, um, remobilize people. And I realized that one of the guys I was working with was work, was, um, high up at warehouser. So timber, you know, lumber industry. And I thought, well, they must, they must have some, some injuries, you know, lose some limbs, you know, with that. And so I called him up and Steve was super nice in, and uh, got me set up with a meeting at Warehouser, and basically Warehouser offered to give me basically like a team of it was eight or ten people, uh, mostly engineers, wow. for, for a year. And I would go in with video of Brian riding, and then I would show a video of somebody you know with with uh, I want to say able body, but with you know two normal legs working. Yeah. Um, and I would show the difference and like what we were struggling with, and they basically helped us hone in on the details. Brian already had a lot of ideas that ended up being. Uh, a big part of the final mm-hmm. uh, design, but some of the things that were surprising, like we wanted suspension in the legs, so we put a shock in the back of the knee. But that <laughs> ended up being to return the leg. So the yeah. big problem was like, you know, you could pedal, but then like you couldn't get your leg back underneath you. And right. so the shock ended up being to help the rider pedal, and it was pretty cool. Like we put this leg together. I think uh, I didn't keep any part of the business element of it. So it's called the Bartlett tendon. It's named after Brian Bartlett, the guy I met. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's still selling the leg. Um, I, I want to say that they're less than $4,000, which for a prosthetic is oh, incredible. Yeah. Seems That's reasonable. It. Yeah, and it comes in this really trick, like aluminum case last I saw. And uh, it was pretty cool. Like we, we did some, um, like we showed up on the East Coast and brought a leg for, for somebody there. And he was missing pretty high up, um, you know, almost up to his hip. He was missing. He, did, he didn't have much to attach it to, but mm-hmm. we attached it to him. And I was riding with Lars Sternberg, who's a super, super fast downhiller guy who works yeah. for transition. And he was on my team at the time and we got this guy's leg put on him and we took the, the ski lift up. And I mean, Lars and I were like hanging on for dear life to keep up with this guy. <laughs> like, Oh my God, this guy is panning, you know, it yeah. was insane. I mean, he was jumping everything and he was like standing and sprinting and we were like, wow. And so we were able to go and do like, give those legs to a few people and to just to watch them just get on the bike, stand up and pedal away. And like, they never stood and sprinted, you know, since they'd lost their leg. Yeah. Um, and to watch them be able to like stand up and deal with bumps, obviously, you know, you don't want to be sitting on the saddle on a technical downhill. Um, so really like a magical thing. And at the time, my partner at the time, she helped set up a, a, a nonprofit that we ran. It was called athletic prosthetics. So we were able to do all of this underneath, um, you know, that, that umbrella of the, of athletic prosthetics. And so, once we got the project really kind of like dialed in, I just said, Hey, Brian, this is yours. And that's kind of something that I've done with other elements, like, uh, with the Northwest cup, that was originally the fluid ride cup. And once that took off, I was like, Hey guys, you know, you guys can run this race series and mm-hmm. can't have the name, but you can keep it. And so that's kind of a big part of, of that's kind of become a theme in what I do kind of like with the 
development of, of lands and things like that, helping people get it to a certain level where the thing can run on its own and being like, okay, now it's your baby. Go ahead and take it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very yeah. cool. So your latest project, Snap MTB, involves a new mountain bike skills online learning environment. So a lot of universities now are offering online classes for academic subjects, but how does this look different for mountain bike instruction? So I mean, for me, it's it's a uh, it's a deep dive into my into my own uh, teaching, which is super super cool. And funnily enough, it's really an opportunity to have like really my first TV. I've never had a t- I don't watch TV. Now I have a <laughs> 75 inch TV monitor or 75 inch uh, monitor on the wall, yeah. which is a touchscreen. Um, so I actually got the idea from a student. He came and took a class about four or five years ago. And I'd kind of been thinking loosely about some kind of online platform, but I didn't really have like a, a way to kind of like conceptualize exactly how it might look. And this guy came and took a class and he's he, at the end of the class, he contacted me. He said, I can't remember what his PhDs are in, but they're, like, he had a couple of PhDs in instruction. And he just said, you know, man, like your teaching is really solid and it's really good. And like, I really was super impressed by the way you taught. But he said, the thing I really learned the most from was when you showed the reviews of what people were doing right and wrong using slow motion video. Mm-hmm. But because I had, I, I often will use like an iPad or my, or like I have a large cell phone and I shoot a lot of slow motion video while I'm teaching and mm-hmm. show the, the little things that are causing issues with riders. Um, it's also a tool for coaches who are new to coaching to slow down what's happening so they can see it more clearly. Mm-hmm. And he just said, you know, like if you had a way of like doing like John Madden style recaps of riders. Yeah it would be insane, man. I could learn so much, you know? And so he was like really personally interested in, in having me set that up. And as technology has, has improved and as I've kind of got kind of a little more bandwidth my, with my business, I have a little bit of help now um, with people who are actually a lot more technically savvy than I am. Uh, I just decided to go for it. And I was like, you know, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to just get the 75 inch monitor. I'm going to stand up there. I made a studio in my house. So it's, it's a basically, oh, cool. I'm being filmed kind of like, somebody like a John Madden style thing, yeah. you know, like football recap, <laughs> like highlights. And to start, I'm showing a lot of my own writing. Um, I'm showing some, some students have given me rights to video, but we're working to get rights to, you know, like a lot of mainstream video as well. And mm. I, that's all going super, super well. And so basically to start when we're, we're hoping to launch in the next like six, six to eight weeks, we'll see how that goes. But it's, but we're, we've made rapid progress. I think we've got like, I don't know, like 30 or 40 videos done already. And oh, cool. the videos are like, anywhere between five minutes and 20 minutes long. Um, and so I can take a very short video clip and I can talk for as long as I want about it because yeah. I'm not constricted by the normal bandwidth of like, okay, people are only interested for two minutes on YouTube. This is going to be for people who want to take the deep dive and they really want to learn the topic. Right. Um, so what we're doing to start is we're just basically taking all of our classes that we teach online. Like every class, if you go to my website, you know, you see the different classes, trail essentials, advanced cornering, all the air classes. And we're breaking down the movements that we teach and the terminologies that we use in those classes. And we're doing that on a big screen and there will be a, a number of modalities that the user can, the end user, like if you're on your phone, you could just click screen only and it's just a recording of the screen. So you can hear me talking, but you're not going to see me standing over that way. The, mm-hmm. the screen's actually to see what's going on and I'm drawing on the screen and talking. Or if maybe you're on your computer or watching on your TV at home, you can actually see me standing in front of the screen mm-hmm. teaching. Um, and we used it. We went down uh, and worked, trained uh, 37 instructors for Ninja Mountain Bike Schools recently down in, in uh, Chiloquin, Oregon. And we decided to to show them an hour's worth of snap videos in the morning. And I'd never actually seen any of the videos yet. I'd just been making them. Yeah. Um, so that was just a couple of weeks ago. And so um, Brandon, um, 
Cicino, who's who's my tech guy and kind of like responsible for a lot of the the awesome things that are happening with Fluid Ride. He got it all set up, and we showed these videos to um, to this room full of instructors, and they were definitely into it. They were definitely entranced, and so we cool. do like a ten minute video and like ten minutes of Q and A, and I think it was actually one of the strongest teaching moments of the of of the teacher training we did with them was just that first kind yeah. of 90 minutes of just watching things breaking it down having questions asked and just being able to go back to the video and just show exactly what i what i meant and exactly mm -hmm. what i was talking about um, i think it really landed well with people and um so i'm excited to bring this to you know to the broader public where it's something we should be able to translate into multiple languages and to be able to reach a lot of people with our instruction for the first time. So we're really excited. It's going to be kind of like a Netflix type thing, you know, kind of similarly priced probably mm -hmm. in the 15 to $20 range um, per month. And then you'll have unlimited access to all of our instruction. We're also putting our three feature length movies, which have been out for quite a while now. We're putting those on the site. So that'll be a part of it as well. Oh, cool. One of the things that's new with fluid ride is you know, while we have the luxury of being able to just to stay in Seattle and people come to us, like I kind of got into this habit of, of being home and it's been really, really nice, but I really feel like people have been so um, good about coming to visit us that we're going to come and visit them. So oh, cool. we're actually doing like a U.S. tour that we're just in the process of setting up. I've just actually just today, I've got my, uh, a new employee starting. He was uh, Dan Bassett, who was the, the former director of education at Evergreen. I kind of pinched him away from Evergreen because <laughs> cool. it's, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> and he's going to help me basically starting today. We're going to be setting up our 2020 tour where we're going to be, you know, um, in different locations, uh, from everything potentially from, you know, Southern California to Texas, to Florida, to Georgia, to around. I mean, we're mm -hmm. not going to do this as our non-stop go-to at least not right now but we are going to try to like make a pretty comprehensive u.s tour for next year where we visit at least one outside location um, per month throughout the year so that we're not awesome. just always here in seattle yeah awesome that's yeah that seems like a really great opportunity for people to experience the fluid ride training system sort of in person and it sounds like that's a big part of it i mean you need to be able to feel this stuff and not just not just see it and understand it. You gotta, you gotta actually experience it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's the best way. I mean, a lot of people will ask me questions. And I just say, well, hey, just grab your bike. You know, you'll, <laughs> once you feel it, like you're like, Oh, okay, I get this. Yeah. This is like a total transformation of the way I'm moving over the bicycle and the way I'm thinking about moving over the bicycle. And one of the things we're thinking of as well, because of the reception we got uh, with the Ninja mountain bike, um, training was we started thinking like, well, what about like going and actually just doing some live instruction with a screen, you know, like when it's not, like, like kind of like the stoke before the season starts yeah. in certain places. So we thought about even doing like some sort of a tour where it's kind of like a meet and greet. Maybe we have instruction on cornering and jumping, but it's all done using a big screen mm -hmm. talking. We've got an audience in front of us and then, you know, we can have Q and a afterward. And, you know, really for me, I would say the biggest, the, like the biggest gift of this whole instructional thing has been the building of community. And I say this at the end of every class, I just said, I just say, you know, like, look around where you live, look around like how you can come to this park here and you see all these people you know. Uh, we've really built just by sheer dumb luck, we've really just built this community that's just amazing in the Northwest. And so I really, I really am eager to get out and to share that, um, that sense of community stoke with other people. And like, that's really what snap is about to me is like, it's in my, it's shot in my living room. So I'm like inviting people into my home, you yeah. know? So I'm inviting the whole worldwide mountain bike community into my home to come and learn with me. And I really feel like, um, it's kind of a strange thing to say, but I really feel like 
the mountain bike community of the world is my extended family, you know? So, yeah. because it's, it's provided my livelihood, um, the people are really interested in what I'm doing. A lot of writers are really interested in what I'm doing and, um, they're really generous with their time with me. And, um, so it's, it's something that I'm just endlessly thankful for my inability to be qualified to do anything else in life has, has, <laughs> has kept me bumbling long enough to stumble on what I've, I've created somehow. And so it's, it's really been a magical time in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been really helpful for me and, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, you can find out more about fluid ride at fluidride.com. And also, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, we'd love to have you rate us in iTunes. So, we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. <laughs>